and welcome to season three, episode two of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee with Drs. Justin Winsenberg and Stephen Jones. In this podcast, we look to explore truth, beauty, wisdom, and goodness at the intersection of faith and scholarship. Today, we begin part one in the first of several series in which we look at Justin's dissertation. This first series focuses on biblical scholarship and empire studies. And in today's episode, Justin reflects on how current events impact readings of the Bible, the theme we come back to in the next couple of episodes. But first, here are our highlights, lowlights, and insights for the week. Well, we usually get started, you know, by telling a coffee story and sharing what we've been drinking coffee-wise lately. So maybe I'll just start by sharing that for Christmas. I got one of those hot pots, you know, the water pots that has a bottleneck spout on it. So like a, a gooseneck spout? Yeah, gooseneck. Yeah, sorry, not bottleneck, gooseneck uh, spout. That way you can do pour over coffee with it. And so my intentions were to not buy coffee at Crown every day uh, that I'm working <laughs> out there, but instead to be making my own in my office. So I got this nice pot. So you have the, the gooseneck hot pot at your office this is the plan? Yeah, I'll bring it to the nice. office, keep it on top of my my little mini fridge I yeah, have there. Yeah. And then uh, I, I got kind of one of those Chemex like uh, um, glass oh, with a pour know, bottles that you yeah. use for pour over. Yeah, It's not technically Chemex, it's a cheaper version. But, <laughs> but anyhow, I'm, I'll use that. And that's some of my ambitions are to make that coffee. I've been testing it out lately and it's been making very good coffee. So I'm excited nice. about Where that. Where are you getting your beans from? Well, my dad got me some Papua New Guinea beans from Dunn Brothers. You know, it's nice because they, they roast them fresh there. So... Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'm probably just going to buy cheap beans usually. And, and you have a special place in your heart for Papua New Guinea beans. I do. I do. But I'll, I'll ha- I have to say this. I've never to this day had Papua New Guinea beans in the U.S. that is even near as good as the Papua New Guinea beans <laughs> in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> That's still the best coffee I've dr- ever had to this day, hands down. And it's just, it's hard to replicate. And that was just black coffee. It, it, it was just simple black coffee. Mm. How about for you? Any, any fun coffee uh, that you've been trying here over break or, mm. or break? I always call it break, you know, cause I'm on the academic calendar, but oh, man, over that's Christmas been, time or the holidays. Yeah. That's been a weird thing. Not having the normal uh, academic schedule guiding my yeah. perception of reality here. But um, yeah, I think I, I, so there's a brand of coffee here called Chibo um, that I like. And I think maybe I've mentioned it once before, but they, you know, one of the first things we did when we moved here was get a burr mill grinder, you know, so we get yeah. the nice oh, yeah. full bodied grind on it. And then they've got a coffee electric or a hand grind. No, it's the, uh, the electric. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, we, although I feel bad sometimes it's a little noisy, you know, and we live in an apartment. And so I actually will go and close the windows and doors. Cause you know, our, <laughs> our kitchen, <laughs> the windows in our kitchen are very close to the windows uh, for our neighbors. And so, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have an electric kettle, although I don't have the, the gooseneck, but we mostly been making French press. And so that, yeah, French nice. press with some Chibo, uh, they have a blue elephant coffee. I, I need to actually study it and figure out where it's from. I don't I don't know, but um, I uh, like that. Not Blue they, Mountain. No, what's that? Oh, Blue Mountain is, I think it originally came from Jamaica, but in Papua New Guinea, they were, they had these Blue Mountain beans. Like, I don't know if it's just a 
particular kind of bean that they grow, but I heard it was like stem. It came from Jamaica, but that it had made its way. Maybe, I don't know. There's some coffee connoisseurs that might be listening saying, no, you're dead wrong on this, but <laughs> all I know is they're wonderful beans. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah. These, they also have a, uh, Chibo also has a Brazil mild. That's quite good. And so, Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we'll, I'll have to have you over for some coffee someday here. So, <laughs> Hey, that, that'd be, that'd be great. This virtual coffee, uh, sharing coffee together just isn't the same. It's is not it? the same. It's not, I could, I could put the grinder on in the background so you could hear it running and that, you know, be similar, but <laughs> you have to imagine the smell for yourself. You know, what's sad is to think about how long it's been since we've actually shared a cup of coffee together in the same place. I'm, I, I was thinking about that. Like, and I have not had a lot of cups of coffee with people like at a coffee shop, you know, cause of COVID. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yep. gosh, yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. And I mean, because we saw each other, you know, this last summer before you'd left, but we didn't, I don't think we had coffee. Uh -uh. So we would have to rewind this back. I don't know when the last time was. It might've been the fall semester before, because I was teaching at night in the uh, semester a year ago. So that's true. Yeah. Well, what's been, uh, what's been a highlight for you this past week or so, I guess it's been a little (laughs) while since we caught up. So maybe we can go back further a week. You know, I think, uh, so, so we're coming out of the holidays here and I think one highlight has been catching up with some folks. Um, one nice mm. thing about kind of the, uh, I, I don't know if it's exactly been a slower pace, but a, a different pace anyway, over the last couple of weeks is it's given, um, both me and other people some space to, to catch up. And so there's still a lot more people I want to catch up with. Uh, the list is yeah. longer than normal because, you know, usually there's people that we're able to just catch up with, uh, in the course of everyday living, um, that we haven't been able to, but yeah, we've had several Jenny, Jenny and I've had several good conversations with people both separately and together over the last couple of weeks. And it's just been really good. Uh, I think there's kind of a, feeling sometimes of, um, getting buried in the cultural transition. And so coming out of that mm-hmm. enough to kind of remember those relationships and remember people and, um, yeah. And, and to be encouraged and yeah, just be in it with people again. It's been good. Oh, that's great. How about you? What's the highlight been? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure if anybody who's out there who maybe, uh, you know, doesn't have kids will, will understand what I'm about to say. And this isn't, this isn't trying to shame anybody who doesn't have kids, but I'll be honest before I had kids what I'm about to say would have sounded absurd, but an actual highlight of mine over the holidays is a new tradition that my wife largely started, which is to get a new set of matching pajamas uh, for the whole family <laughs> every year for Christmas. Now, again, maybe, maybe you're out there and you're, and you're, and you're not married or, and you don't have kids and you think that that's something that you would uh, enjoy with the rest of your extended family. But uh, I used to think that such a thing was absurd, but now I'm really enjoying it. I'm getting us all dressed up with the same pajamas, (laughs) taking a picture together and actually not just taking a picture. We wear them like, you know, several times throughout the course of the week over the holidays. Um, And as dorky as they look, it's still, still pretty fun. So, so are these going to last you a ways into the year then? Is that the plan? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we had our, we had our first set that we got last year and, you know, still wear them throughout the course of the year. I mean, these aren't expensive pajamas or anything, you know, and, um, but it's kind of fun to put them all on together and, uh, wear them around the house. Um, my kids though, you know, they're going to be growing out of theirs. So that's kind of why you need to get new ones every Every year year, because, (laughs) because, uh, you know, the way that these kids grow, uh, they just don't fit in the jammies from the year before. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I'm that dorky guy now who's wearing, um, wearing matching pajamas over Christmas time. So, but I'm proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a highlight. That's great. And actually to, to add something to that, one of the other things I think that's a highlight about it is that I realized how few family traditions around the holidays that my wife and I have actually started with our kids. And this is now one of them. Nice, so I'm kind yeah. of, we're kind of moving in the right direction. I think of starting some traditions together and that's, that's something that's fun about it. That is fun. <laughs> what, what's a low light been for you? You know, anybody who knows us might think that this is sad to talk about because it's a very Minnesota thing to do. And that is the awful, terrible weather that has now approached Minnesota. Uh, I think I saw the other day was negative 20 degrees. So can I just tell you, I miss it. You do? Oh, no. Come on. Don't say <laughs> such a thing. Shame on you. <laughs> I know. it. I think we're sitting at like 50 degrees today. <laughs> 50 degrees. Yeah, it was, it was cold. We were below freezing, uh, which are, those are not the same thing in Minnesota, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we, we had, so, we had ice, uh, for maybe a week or so, yeah. but yeah, I miss it. I heard Minnesotans talk about the weather a lot. And so I know I'm getting into that, but the, the truth is, is that this is just an ungodly kind of cold <laughs> that you can't, that you can't even imagine if you've never experienced it. Like, and, I, and again, I miss oh. the different sounds of the snow and ice. Oh man. You know what yes. I'm talking about? How yes. different temperatures it sounds different. underneath your feet when it's that cold, it just crunches in a way. Yeah. That's, that's a distinct sound. And you know, you, you learn, you learn to bundle up and all of that, but no, nobody was meant to live in this kind of weather. <laughs> that's just the truth. That's our snow has lasted for a day, maybe when we've gotten it and it's never been more than a couple inches. Yeah. It, it goes away very quick. We visited my mom in Iowa, you know, which she lives down by Des Moines, which is three and a half hours from here, but mm-hmm. yeah, they didn't have a single bit of snow down there. It's, it's interesting to think about how, um, how we live in this, uh, you know, we, I guess me and my family now live in this, uh, live in this spot in the, in the Midwest or North Midwest where, you know, you just get this very particular kind of weather, um, that's, that's not experienced necessarily even a couple hours South or mm-hmm. East or West of here. Yeah, it, It's, I would miss not having snow during the winter time, but I d- wouldn't miss the negative 25 <laughs> wind chill. That's, it, that's it is something else. It really is. Yeah. How about for you? What's been a low light? I think one of the things that we, often will do well. So, so one of the traditions that we've started as a family is for new years, we will go through and look at, uh, pictures from the last year. So we'll, you know, cast our, our phones onto the TV. Um, and so one of the days recently we were looking through the pictures that uh, Jenny had from the last year and I think it was good, but yeah, it was, it was harder and sadder than I had imagined that it would be. Um, partly just what about it was well, the last year went so incredibly quickly. We were getting ready to, you know, wrapping up uh at the college, wrapping up in our I mean, I was wrapping up the dissertation, wrapping up living in the yeah. house there. We had a dog, and then, you know, so so at the beginning of last year we had the dog in the pictures, and then at some point she disappeared, you know. And then, yeah. you know, we saw all of the things in the 
in the house. Like it was funny. The kids were commenting. The house kept getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner in the pictures. And then suddenly there was nothing left, you know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, the, the people that we had been with that we were no longer with as the year went on. And then of course, a lot of things got added. And so it was, there was a lot of good yeah. too. Um, but yeah, there was just something, I think it's important to go back and remember, uh, like really important because it's yeah. Part of remembering even who we are and yeah, and, and even remembering why did we come here and what were we talking about a year ago? And, you know, I mean, yeah. we, we've been talking about coming for longer than that. It's been more than two years since we started, you know, thinking about whether we'd be moving here. But yeah, there's just something remembering the losses uh, mm. is good, but yeah, not uh, easy. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was there an insight too that you have that? you've been thinking about? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I think kind of along a similar line, thinking about how long we've been thinking about moving here and then, and then now living here in Berlin. Um, I was wandering around today in the city, but I say wandering around, that sounds kind of weird. Like I'm aimlessly going around, but you know, it's like, uh, it, it's this huge city. I don't know, depending on the count you look at, it's between three and a half and four and a half million people that live here. And yeah. And then, and, and then we go by foot, we don't have a car here. And so mm-hmm. getting yeah. anywhere kind of has this wandering feel where you're like, well, I might take this transit, you know, I might take the tram, which is like a streetcar here, or I might take the bus or I might take the train. It just kind of depends on what is available quickest. And so I never quite know yeah. how I'm going to get across town, uh, to where I'm getting. But anyway, I went to a bookstore today. There was a book I was trying to get uh, in English. And for some reason, English language books have been hard to get a hold of here recently. I don't know if that's Brexit related or what, but anyway, so I found an English bookstore. It's great. But I had this feeling of like, I think I've been in this neighborhood before. And so I wandered intentionally in a direction where I thought I maybe had stayed with a team of crown students back in 2019. And I found it, I found the, the corner where the, the place we had stayed was. And actually I got a little treat at the, there's, there's a little bake shop underneath. Um, yeah. And there, I got a little yummy <laughs> baked good. Cause there's so many good pastries here. But anyway, the insight was when I was last there, which was in May of 2019, I had no idea that I would be living here now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the insight was that the, the student who led the trip led us here because it was a place that she knew and she wanted to share with others. And, you know, she felt like it would be a a good thing for other people to experience. And I think she didn't know, you know, she also didn't know that three or two and a half years later we would be living here. You know, it's like, I think, and, and so the, there's just something about like, the insight is maybe a little underdeveloped, but there's kind of this thing. If you just never know how you doing something that the Lord puts on your heart might move somebody else's life forward in a really cool way. So yeah, such as it is, there's my insight. How about you? Well, no, a comment just on something you said there quick, which is, you know, maybe on on just a surface level observation, I've had some similar thoughts every now and then because I I live now in a house that I must have walked past thousands of times when I was a kid Mm. um, because I lived, I lived across the park that that from where I live now growing up and it never dawned on me someday I might live here. 
Isn't that crazy? Like so you just, interesting. You, you never, you never know. Like, like you there's go, a you decent go visit chance. Places. Did, do you remember ever having noticed that house before? Like when no, you were a kid? No, nope. In fact, I, I don't really remember walking on this side of the street much. It's, it's that kind of thing where you yep. think about all the routes that I used to take to go to various places. And I would, I would, I would be within an eye shot of this house so many times mm. throughout my childhood because my buddy lived a block away. But still, yeah, the, the thought would, I, I never noticed the house ever. Interesting. So to, to think about all the memories that have been made here now with my family, I mean, these, this is the only house that neither of my kids have ever known. Mm-hmm. You know, and to think growing up that this whole time, oh yeah, I could have ever anticipated living in this spot. It, it's just very interesting. I think of that every now and then too, like you, when you travel to places, like you never know, right? You never know you never that know. Hey, maybe this this place can be a place <laughs> you live someday. Yeah. Anyhow, well, my, my insight is is uh, is a little off topic, but I've been thinking a little bit about this subject because I've been noticing on Twitter a lot that I follow a lot of academics and it seems like this time of year, people are posting their favorite book lists of 2021. Mm-hmm. So they're talking a lot about the books they've read over the course of the year and what are their favorites. One thing that struck me is a thinking back about the books I've read and I definitely read less books this year than in previous years because I wasn't doing PhD work. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but I think back and the, the bizarre thought that I had that is that it forms into some sort of insight is for one, how, how much does it say about us as people when you rattle off that list of your favorite books? Like, what does it say about your interests? What does it say about mm. things that are developing in our own thinking and our, in our things that we feel like we're maybe under, especially if they're educational style books that we're maybe need to learn about. So I think that's a fascinating thing to think about is just whatever books you would consider your favorite over the past year. What is that saying about yourself mm. as in your development personally and, and, and whatnot? Um, but then the thing I had uh, that I noticed about myself was almost none of my favorite books in the past year come from within the field that I teach in. Oh, that's interesting. Um, directly. In fact, a lot of the books that I have picked up from within the field have been pretty uninteresting to me. <laughs> <laughs> what I find myself reading is like, this is academically speaking, not just for fun, but academically, I find myself reading books about archaeology and history in the Roman empire and mm-hmm. things like that, things that are related to my field, but that aren't new Testament. They're like adjacent to your field. Adjacent. Those things have been energizing me way more than just picking up some book that the theologian has written. I shouldn't be saying this because I'll have my book come out at some point this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe somebody in an adjacent field will find that it's their favorite. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe somebody who's not in the field of New Testament will actually find it interesting, but I'm wondering what that's saying about me. This is my insight. Like, what does that say about me when I'm not really enjoying reading the newest literature within my field and I'm I'm enjoying things that are more interdisciplinary, I would consider it interdisciplinary things outside of my discipline. I wonder though, if some of that too is just the freedom that comes from having finished your PhD. Yes, there's that. And then there's just a general dissatisfaction with a lot of the stuff that's being put out yeah. in New Testament studies. I, I think and, and I'll admit, maybe I'm going to be contributing to that because maybe my, my book will kind of just be another, another, another one of those. I hope it won't be. But, but the truth is, I mean, that's it, just kind of, so maybe it's saying something about myself. Maybe it's saying something about my feelings about the state of New Testament studies or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. But there is something when you know, you know it so well, it, I, I wonder if that's a common feeling for scholars that you get kind of dissatisfied with your own field. 
because you know the problems in the methodology and you know the yeah it's like you get good enough at identifying where these ideas came from and how they're being developed that it's a little like okay I see why you did that but you could have done it this way or it's like it's almost like it's like yeah. a musician who is so good at music that sometimes maybe bad music is hard to listen to it, maybe it's like this maybe it's like those bands that you always were jazzed about and then all of a sudden they come out with a record that is just completely not their style and everybody's ticked off at them but you realize that maybe they're just fed up with playing like this <laughs> same particular thing brand of music again. like yeah, yeah. And, and there's something like that where i feel like maybe it's like it's not that I don't have something to learn from someone's book on Paul's letter to the Romans, right? Like clearly I don't know everything there's to know about that, mm -hmm. but it, there's just a lot of the conversation that just feels like, Oh yeah. Okay. Like I get that. But then when I'm reading a book from an area that I just am not well-trained in, or that is so, somewhat of a new interest of mine, I, you just feel like you're learning more. Yeah. Right. You feel like, Oh man, I didn't know this stuff. Oh, wow. Oh, no way. No way. It's like, it reinvigorates that, that excitement of learning when you start reading things that are outside your, your typical, you know, sight line that you normally would, would look into. You know, that makes me think of as I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm thinking about today's episode and, uh, you know, so we recorded this, uh, a while back a conversation about your dissertation and I'm thinking about who in our listening audience is going to really resonate with it. And I think in some ways it, it is probably, uh, in an adjacent field for most of our listeners or maybe a not adjacent field, you know, it's like, yeah, cause we get pretty into the, into the thickness of what your dissertation is, but I'm hopeful that it's interesting. I found it really interesting um, as somebody not in your field. And so, yeah, maybe there's a sense in which getting into some of these questions, um, I, I think that's even like when you read something or, or hear something from another field, there's kind of this sense of, I didn't even know that was a question to ask. And I think that can be kind of energizing. Yeah. We'll be back in a moment with a conversation that I found super interesting about Justin's dissertation. As always, you can find more at profsandrooms.com or join the conversation at patreon.com slash profsandrooms. So we, as we were talking about this season, one of the things that we were talking about is our Patreon supporters uh, had mentioned that they would be interested to know more about our dissertations because we, you know, through the first two seasons, we were working on our dissertations and you, you finished up and then, uh, uh what a year later. So I finished up. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. So here we go. This is the first series that we're doing. So series one is focused on your dissertation. And then, uh, later on we'll do a series focused on my dissertation. So can you just kind of like quickly in a nutshell, tell us what it's about? Yeah. Isn't that the worst question about a dissertation? Well, it's actually, it was the worst question at one point, And then it became the easiest question for me. Um, part of it's because you always are like a deer in headlights when you're working on it. And someone mm -hmm. says, so tell me, um, what's your thesis? In other words, like, what are you concluding? And of course, while you're working on it, it's, it's kind of a work in progress. You're like, well, I was concluding this and now I'm leaning here. And I'm, but so, so it becomes a loaded question, but in terms of what my thesis is about or what it's, what it's doing is it's kind of easy. I'm looking at uh, the book of Ephesians in the new Testament, and I was exploring uh, whether or not it challenged the Roman imperial ideology. Okay. Does Ephesians and its portrait of Jesus, especially um, challenge certain things that were happening and, and certain beliefs about the Roman empire in the first century. That's it. 
Nice. That's <laughs> succinct. That's great. Is that, is that shorter than your title? Yeah, it's definitely simpler than my title. My title has some components of the method that I use in it. And so, you know, I have mentioned on the podcast before that um, this is turning into a book that should be coming out here in 2022. And I'm anticipating the title is going to be simplified for okay. when it's published. So <laughs> it is it is simpler than the title. Yeah. Uh, congratulations on the uh, publication coming out. Yeah, I, I never realized how hard it was to format that has been the thorn in my side. I'm serious. Like all the agony of the content is one thing. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't this isn't common, I guess. What I've heard, um, just in talking with some other scholars, is that there are a lot of publishers that just do that work for you. Gotcha. But the particular publisher that I'm going with, they basically give you a manual and say, take a stab at it. <laughs> and 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 it is crazy. I mean, I never knew that Microsoft Word could do half of the things that oh, they have it's you amazing. do on there. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But it requires like heavy use in order to figure out how to do all these things. And the worst part is, is one little click here or one click there that's incorrect can completely mess up all the formatting. So uh, sure. Yeah. Anyhow, I am excited for it to come out. And you said that's in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing now maybe kind of late spring, maybe early summer. Gotcha. So, Okay. Ephesians and Empire. So it's this little book in the middle of that, the Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, right? All right together. Yeah. So we'll talk more about Ephesians itself in one of the other episodes in this series, but I thought it might be really interesting to start by talking about Empire. Yeah. I really have enjoyed reading your dissertation so far. I've, I'm not done with it, <laughs> but oh, that's uh, encouraging. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think part of it, Part of it is that I feel no obligation to read the footnotes because it's not my field. Of course. Yeah. yeah <laughs> they yeah. are, they are substantial, <laughs> but part of it yeah. is like, I mean, I'm enjoying the scholarship of it. I'm like, this is a lot of work and you are clearly speaking to different audiences within your field, right? People who, who have different issues with the text or, or different criticisms regarding authorship. And you're speaking to kind of this wide range, but you're saying wherever you are in that range of ways of looking at the text, here's the argument that I'm making. And then you advance yeah. and it's super interesting. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think, you know, most uh, dissertations start with a sort of literature review and a survey of the literature and the field. And I, and I do that, but um, one thing I, I was continually pressed on um, by my advisor is, you know, you got to make sure to show where you land in this conversation and why there's some missing pieces in it. So, you know, that first chapter that I wrote is, I don't know what it ended up at 30 pages or something, which mm -hmm. for a literature review is actually probably short compared to a lot of fields, but, but it's very but narrow, I, I, right? Like you start yeah, immediately into your context. Yeah. I, I talk about like Paul and politics and Paul and empire for a brief point. And then it's like, boom, what's been written on Ephesians and empire. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. And that's like the whole focus of most of that chapter is kind right. of surveying what's been done and why my work is needed. It, it's crazy when you, you know, when you write a dissertation, you start to realize, Oh, so this is how some of these books get polished up in the way that they do is you're <laughs> like, man, you got to start figuring these things out early. Like, yeah, here's where I'm landing in the conversation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think the uh, the biggest question, I think probably that if we're going to understand your dissertation, I don't know if it's the biggest, one of the biggest questions is what on earth is empire, right? I mean, obviously we know historically yeah. the Roman empire, but there there are some theoretical pieces around 
empire. And so when you're thinking about empire and you're asking this question of, you know, is Paul speaking to or against or about the empire? What do you have in mind? It's a, it's a little bit of a loaded question because I'll be honest, my dissertation is pretty narrow. My, my question that I'm really addressing isn't does Ephesians challenge empires? I mean, that, that would be a fascinating question. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, does, does what Ephesians is saying about Jesus in particular challenge any imperial sort of entity or ambitions? Um, that's a big question. That's not a question I actually address. Maybe it's got to be a volume two at some point. That'd be a really interesting one. It would be, although, you know, after working on this for 11 years, I'm not sure I'm ready to, uh, <laughs> to set out uh, writing another one immediately afterward. But it, that I think would be an interesting question. And, and some scholars have asked that question a bit. I'll express that here, explain that here in just a second. But my question is a little more pointed. It, it is, it is, does Ephesians challenge Roman empire and in the Roman expression of empire. Um, so really it's, it's a little more narrowly focused and not asking just questions about empire in general. So even when I begin and I have to define what empire is, I actually kind of, I take a bit of a cop out and say, by this, I'm, I'm referring to something along the lines of Roman expressions of imperialism that include, you know, widespread expansion, things like autocratic rule, and then not only just expansion of the boundaries of the rule, but also particularly through conquest and subjugating peoples. And I'm guessing that that might be a pretty standard definition of empire as such, but I'm interested in the Roman expression of it. And so that's my main question. Mm -hmm. But really, I think, and this makes me think then about, you know, empires in general, and that they seem to have that similar reality, which is, again, autocratic rule, which isn't true of all empires, but is pretty common. And then the idea of conquest and subjugation of peoples. I think those seem to be at the core of a lot of empires and imperial sentiments. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you're focused pretty narrowly on the Roman expression of empire. I like the way you yeah. phrase that because empire certainly exists beyond or outside of the Roman expression of it. But the Roman expression of it is a particular historical question that we can look at. Um, but yeah. then you mentioned early in the dissertation that the imperial critical readings of the text have increased since the 2003 invasion of Iraq by the U.S. I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that. And I want to ask you why that is, but I think first there's even just this, well, no, no. Yeah. Why, why is that? Do you think? Well, yeah. First, let me clarify some terminology quickly. When you say imperial critical readings, what that means is readings of the new Testament that see it as critical of the Roman empire. So that's essentially the question that my dissertation is asking. So imperial critical, does the new Testament challenge empire in the Roman empire? And specifically you're asking is, is that happening in Ephesians? Yes, exactly. Now, the, this interesting question about how the 2003 invasion of Iraq increased these readings, I, I'll clarify just a little bit. Now, imperial critical readings of the New Testament didn't emerge out of that. It, it existed before that. And in fact, there, there were some scholarly developments like in the 80s and 90s that essentially sort of uh, caused the field to really take shape. And especially by the time the mid 90s come around. Mm-hmm. But I'll stand by my statement in my dissertation, which is that when the, the 2003 invasion of Iraq occurs, those readings definitely increase. Now, why? So more more scholarship, more publication, more questions being asked Bingo. about that. Yeah. In fact, even some of the scholars who were publishing in the field prior to the 2003 
invasion of Iraq. And I might add even prior to 2001 World Trade Center towers and the, mm-hmm. all the things that involved there on 9-11, the scholars who were writing before that about the New Testament criticizing the Roman Empire began explicitly making statements either publicly at conferences like the one I'm about to go to or in some of their publications about some of the significance of the American invasion of Iraq for the field. Mm. Um, So they saw this as a significant thing and they were writing on it prior to that. So why? Why did it increase after that is an interesting question. And um, again, this is, I mean, the invasion of Iraq, that's, that's, that's something you know better than I do, but I do know kind of how it impacted my field in particular. And I think the critics of, of what I'm doing, critics of imperial critical readings mm-hmm. would say that the reason why it increased was because there was this sort of unhealthy contextual readings of the New Testament that emerged out of an American context. Unhealthy meaning readings that read into the text things that aren't there. Interesting. And the reason it reads things into the text is because of the context of the readers. So what the critics would say is, oh, Americans started to have these aha moments that, oh, maybe America is functioning as a sort of empire mm-hmm. because we're, we're, we're conquesting, you know, countries We're you know, I don't know, subjugating other peoples perhaps. And so what, what the critics would say is, you know, this sort of development of these readings of the New Testament are coming from Americans who are actually reading this into the Bible rather than seeing something that was present originally. So yeah. So they would see it as an unhealthy contextual reading. Right. So this, this gets really interesting because I think you could probably make exactly the same critique for why some of those readings weren't happening earlier. Exactly. In fact, that's what I was, I was going to bring that up. I mean, so the critics would say unhealthy contextual readings, but the people who are proponents of those readings would say, well, wait a second, isn't it possible that what's happening in our own current modern context could actually, in some ways, it could unveil the fact that our readings have been obstructed by our context. In other words, that these these imperial critical sentiments were a part of the text originally, but because of our own sort of um, lack of awareness of empire, um, we've missed it. And one of the ways to have a lack of awareness of empire could be to be a participant in one that just doesn't call itself that. Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. Yep. And so then the idea would have been that that, that the 2003 invasion of Iraq in particular, for some reason unveiled sort of this awareness of saying, wow, there's this imperialism present in an American context that we see now parallel somehow with imperialism that was existent in the first century that the New Testament appears to challenge. Um, so so it, could, it could go both ways. So we have two like competing ideas, either engaging with the imperial critical re- readings of the New Testament could be, on the one hand, an expression of an unhealthy contextualization. On the other hand, not doing those could also be an expression of an unhealthy contextualization. And I suppose the other question is then could engaging in these readings intentionally be a healthy or appropriate hermeneutical engagement with scripture? Yeah. That, I mean, that's really the question and that's where the conversation sort of settled that because there's a lot of nitpicky things. And 
I have to address this in my dissertation on, on whether or not, you know, this is an appropriate method to use for interpreting empire in the New Testament or not. But the sort of underlying, you know, who in the background, the boogeyman is these are largely coming out of Americans, uh, American proponents of these anti-imperial readings. And a lot of them developed post 2003. And so again, I mean, that those are just the facts. They didn't, they didn't mm-hmm. start there. I already said that, but they certainly were exploded um, in some ways in that, in that you can just see the publications in the 2000s, especially in the 2010s to to 2020s, you're seeing massive amounts of publications on anti-imperial readings emerge. And I think anybody who's hip with it will say, we'll see clearly (laughs) something happened culturally that made these readings um, viable and and made these readings emerge. Mm -hmm. The question though is is whether that's a valid reason for these readings to emerge or whether that's just a form of misreading now. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. But now uh, maybe I'll just add something quickly here. So that is an interesting question about the the impact that these events in America had in in the 2000s. Um, But there were developments going on in the 80s and 90s that actually pushed the field forward. Really interesting developments. And I'll just add a couple of things about this in case our listeners are interested. Um, One of them is that New Testament scholars in this field in particular started to move beyond reconstructing history through literature primarily. In other words, like in the in the past, you know, we we've looked at what was the Roman Empire like, and mm-hmm. we did it primarily by reading Roman sources, writers. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But what happened was is that the New Testament field in general started to become more sympathetic to saying, if we want to reconstruct a Roman world that the New Testament was born within and that that it engages, you can't just look at literature. You've got to look at inscriptions. You've got to look at coinage. You've got to look mm. at statues. So what happened was there was a move sort of almost away from this exclusively literature-based reconstruction of history to now saying, well, we've to kind of this broader historical anthropology. Yeah, yeah. We've got to look at a wide array of other kinds of things that tell us about the world that the New Testament was, Mm -hmm. that merged out of and also engaged with. And so there were various publications on things like you know, Roman emperor worship and there are publications on Roman history, like the the emperors. So then that changes the context of how we understand. And it, and I suppose to some people that felt unsettling because it's like, well, wait, no, the scripture says what it says, but then there's this, and and we've used the word already, but hermeneutical, like what, what is, you know, so I wanted to say, this is this hermeneutical question. What, What does that mean? What is, what is a hermeneutical question? What's a hermeneutical question? Yeah. Or what is hermeneutics? Uh, Hermeneutics is basically like the process and procedure which we go about interpreting, interpreting anything. But usually in the New Testament, hermeneutics is interpreting the biblical text. Um, Now, I mean, we do hermeneutics with anything in our lives in terms of how we interpret conversations, how we interpret reality, all those could be considered hermeneutics. Like in your faith and film class, you, you talk about the hermeneutical interpretation, right? How you're interpreting film, right? Yeah. Yep. So with new Testament though, hermeneutics is again, sort of a, a broader field of what, what methods do we use in order to understand the new Testament text and the world that it, that it's in. Um, and again, I think for, for a long period of New Testament studies, it was focused exclusively on literature. Mm-hmm. So literature was the primary informative area that helps us to understand how the New Testament, you know, conveys meaning. And then what happened is this 
basically scholars were like, wait a second, there's all these other areas that help us to see the world um, that the New Testament, you know, existed in and that we have ignored that. And by looking at it, what we see is, oh, wow, there's things going on that we haven't been acknowledging. Mm -hmm. But I can see where I can see where some people would feel uncomfortable with that. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, um, well, well, why do you, why would you think that people would be uncomfortable with it? Um, because I think there's this, so if you, there's this idea and, and I don't know if you want to call it a conservative impulse or what, but there's this feeling of, I, I want to know, I want to take the Bible seriously. And so I don't want to impose things from the outside on it. Yeah. And so, so then we develop certain readings of the Bible and we begin to feel like, okay, this is what it says. And then somebody says, well, no, but this is the context. And so that's probably not what it was saying. It feels like you're changing scripture. Actually, what you're doing is you're saying, no, you were already bringing ideas to scripture before. (laughs) And now we can clarify some of those ideas and, and get maybe a, a more accurate reading or at least challenge the, bring up the idea that perhaps we had an inaccurate reading before the issue isn't the scripture. The issue is that we were already doing a contextual hermeneutic. Um, but sometimes yeah. we forget that that was the case. But anyway, it, it, I can, I can sense why people would be like, oh yeah, you know, no, you, you found this inscription on a Roman coin and now you want to change the meaning of scripture. Like, come on, man. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's not so much, you know, and that might, I don't think anyone's really doing that, but but what they're saying is, wow, look, we're looking at Roman coins and we're seeing that the ideologies that were being conveyed about Roman emperors were far more widespread than we thought. Mm -hmm. And, and actually they were, they were very potent ideologies that has some striking, similarities with the things that are being claimed about Jesus in the new Testament. So a lot of the field that I'm engaging with is actually trying to, trying to look at not just the Roman empire in general, but specifically look at the role that the Roman emperor played within it and Mm -hmm. to see whether or not, you know, the new Testament's visions of Jesus or portraits of Jesus really were conflicting with that. The problem is, is that if all we're doing to reconstruct what people believed about the Roman emperors to read the literature on it, that gives us a window, but it doesn't give us a more complete picture. So what happened is when we started collecting coins and we started looking at statues and we started expanding, you know, these sort of the discipline of trying to reconstruct history, it made our eyes kind of open up to, whoa, there are these things going on. The claims that are being made that the person sitting in say Ephesus, for example, would have understood about the Roman emperor that when Jesus claims are being made to them in Ephesians, then they might say, well, hold hold on a second here. (laughs) Um, We already understood the emperor to be fulfilling those roles. Mm. Which is a huge thing. And we'll we'll come back to that later in the series, but it is. Yeah. We'll look at that with Ephesians a bit, but yeah. (laughs) So there's all these things. And and really what I think we could say as an optimist in the field, meaning I'm not, I'm not strictly critical of these sorts of readings. Obviously I'm sympathetic, but with a bunch of nuancing that I have to do in my dissertation, Mm -hmm. what I would say is that the more interdisciplinary that New Testament studies has become, the more it's opened us up to readings that go, wow, there's things being engaged here in their first century environments that we just haven't been aware of Mm -hmm. because we've been so narrowly focused on this or that within the discipline. And because our own environment, well, our own environment, our own upbringing, our own education didn't prime us to look for those things. 
Exactly. Yes, yes. That that I think is is a huge component. So I think the response to the critics would be that the events of, say, you know, the invasion of Iraq just opened our eyes up to things that were in the text that we previously hadn't seen because we weren't we we weren't thinking about it. Now, that, I, that's so you're uh, not you're not trying to like twist scripture or or you know you're not trying to. I, I mean, you're not trying to come up with, uh, you know, Justin Winsenberg's version of the Bible. Like, no, it, it sounds like what you're trying to do is say, I, I want to take seriously what it says. And I think maybe it was saying something we didn't know to look for. Yeah. Yeah. And essentially what I propose, I don't put it this way. And in fact, it, it, in a lot of the circles that I run in theologically, this would be, this would be a naughty word I'm about to say. Um, but what I, what I propose is essentially like a first century reader response mm. interpretation. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, reader response interpretations are usually the idea of like, what matters isn't what the author meant. What matters is how the reader takes it. But you're not saying what matters is how I take it. No, what I'm saying is what matters is how the recipients that these were written to would have understood it. So it's a first century sort of reader response and that I'm saying, <laughs> yes, what did the author mean? But how would the audience have understood it? Mm-hmm. And then what you, you have to do is you have to go into their context and say, well, what, what world were they living in? So that these seemingly religious claims about Jesus might have actually carried also some weight as to what it would have indicated about the Roman imperial context that they lived in. Yeah, this is so interesting. Yeah, hopefully it's not, you know, hopefully it's not, you know, completely out in left field there where our listeners are feeling like, what, what? I don't get a word of what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think what we'll do, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk through some specific examples of empire, which I think will help give us a, a sense of maybe what some of this means. Sure. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee. As always, you can join us at patreon.com slash profs and rooms for more conversations and bonus content. We hope you can join us for coffee again next time. Mm-hmm.